Hey, well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm joined on being the campus pastor here. We're, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you are new to Bridgewater or this is your first weekend with us, um, well, every year we take a couple weeks just to talk about finances because we know what a big deal finances are in our life. We know what a big deal finances uh, are in our relationships and stress factors and all of those things. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this series called Money and Happiness. And as you consider money and happiness, there's a bit of irony here because you feel like you're in church, so you're not supposed to say that money makes you happy because you know the Sunday school answer that that's not true. Can I tell you it is true? Money can make you happy. But your perspective on money makes a big difference on whether you are actually happy with it or not. That's what we're going to talk about today is how do you uh, approach finances in a way, approach stuff and things in a way that actually would bring you happiness. So here's my question for you this morning. I want to show of hands. Everybody be honest. Do you want to be happy? Raise your hands. Do you want to be happy? All right. I'm going to assume if your hand is down, you're either the Grinch or your name is Chris for Matter. <laughs> if you know, you know. All right. I love you. All right. We all want to be happy. To some degree or another, we spend a good majority of our life doing the things we love, doing the things that bring us happiness, and avoiding the things that we don't love and that don't bring us happiness, right? Like there's a reason the dishes stay piled up because you don't love doing dishes, right? But you love hanging out in that recliner, right? We pursue happiness, right? Which is interesting because for some of us, the same thing can bring us happiness that brings stress to other people. Tax season. Some of you have a small village that lives inside of your house. And so when tax season comes around, it's payday, and you love tax season. Others of you, when tax season comes around, have contemplated borrowing your neighbor's kids for six months and a day <laughs> to get the tax break you've been looking for, right? Like, we, we all have certain things that bring us happiness, and sometimes the pursuit of that happiness leads us to bad places. Sometimes it causes us to run down roads that we should not be running down because we're looking for some need or satisfaction to be met. And then other times, they're just weird, right? Like some of you have been convinced for your whole life that one day being a Dallas Cowboys fan is finally going to make you happy. (laughs) And I think you've subjected yourself to a life of the worst kind of happiness, which is almost happiness. I just don't know what to tell you. Pick a different team. Anyway, that's for you, Seth. All right. Here, as a culture, though, we have bought this idea that happiness, the pursuit of happiness, that it's out there, that we can chase it, we can find it. But here's what I want to propose to you this morning. We are a culture that simultaneously resists happiness and chases it relentlessly. We can see it in our hearts. We can see it in our eyes. We can see it in our friends. We are chasing something that is going to make us happy, but at the same time, we're also resisting real happiness. We're resisting what God would offer us as happiness, and we feel this conflict in our hearts that gets us in this cycle because we just never seem to get what we wanted. But we've bought this idea in America that more is always better, right? We're the supersized country of massive, like you buy a medium drink now, and I ordered a medium drink the other day, and it was like what used to be an extra large when I was a kid, right? Because why? More is better. You think about $1 is good, $2 is better. One chocolate bar is good, two may be good. By the third, you don't feel so good. Why? Because more isn't always better. Sometimes too much of a good thing in the wrong place in our heart ends up leading us down a road that will never ultimately deliver for us the happiness we wanted, but actually give us feelings we were trying to avoid in the first place. 
I want you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you see it's between uh, right around Psalms, Proverbs area. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to put one for free in your hands back at the Welcome Center. Uh, In the book of Ecclesiastes, you get kind of the memoir of a man who had it all. He had power. He had influence. He was wealthy. He had wisdom. He had friends. We're just going to leave it at that. He had everything the world was chasing. And in this memoir, he begins to look back at all of his pursuits, all the things he chased, and he makes some observations, which I think will be incredibly helpful for us, and are actually going to point us to two really unlikely places that you might find happiness. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. He said, I looked around and I saw people and I saw people running and I saw people chasing and the driving motivation for them wasn't because they wanted to excel and do great. It's because they wanted to surpass the people next to them. Because when they looked, they saw their friends, their sister, their coworkers living a certain lifestyle, driving a certain car, doing a certain thing, and they just wanted to be up with them. What I would say to us is that we probably are unaware how much our surroundings are impacting what we want and desire, right? Like if you this morning woke up in Kora, Ethiopia, or Kenya, the desire of your heart would probably not be a new F-250. The desire of your heart would probably be the new bicycle that your friend got. So much of it is relative. If you were in New York City this morning, you wouldn't want the big gas-guzzling vehicle. You'd want the hybrid because you're going to be stuck in traffic all day long. That's what the surrounding circumstances are causing the desire in their heart to be. And could I just propose to you this morning that perhaps the things you're chasing are really just because people around you have them. You, in a different circumstance, may not even want the things that you currently want. He says there's just this drive within us to just compare with those around us. Here's where I think the first place happiness comes from, and it's this. Happiness comes from wanting less. He, he says it right here. I see people chasing and toiling and living a meaningless life, chasing wind, because they want things they can't afford. They want things they don't have. They want things that actually belong to others. And he talks about really just this idea of coveting. I want something that's not currently mine. How do you know when you're coveting, though? Like, how do you know the difference between um, this is just a natural progression in my life, and when I was 15, I didn't care about these things, but now that I'm older, I do. How do you know the difference? Well, I think one of the ways you can tell is by paying attention to your emotions, because coveting never feels good, does it? Right? Like, you're sitting in your sister's kitchen, beautifully remodeled kitchen, and you're trying to be excited for her. You really are. Oh, honey, these granite countertops are just wonderful. Oh, yeah, they're just so great. <laughs> Yeah, those cabinets are gorgeous, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like, y- y'all know what I'm talking about. It might not be cabinets, but you felt that feeling, and it's easy. You know, guys are always trying to throw their wives under the bus. Like, she just had less shoes. They wouldn't have a problem. I'm like, okay, let's talk about the shoe problem here. How many pair of boots do you own? Well, those are my hunting boots. They're different. I rest my case, all right? They, they, women might want the beach at the vacation or this or that, but we're just as guilty, guys. All right, you might not want to be at the beach for the vacation, but you want a hunting trip where no one can reach you, talk to you, or ask you for anything, right? 
Yes, okay, there it is. <laughs> we got some honest folks in the room this morning, okay? It is in all of us, and what I think is important to pay attention to is the emotion that arises when we look at the thing we don't have. I would call it an unfulfilled longing. When do you experience an unfulfilled longing? I want it. I can't get it. I don't have it. Right? You're not usually settled when you feel that. Like Joy isn't usually jumping out of your heart in those circumstances. There's sometimes a little self-pity. Sometimes a little disdain for your income levels. There's just, ah, that can kind of settle in there. For me personally, um, there's a couple of ways that this shows up in my heart. And one of the dangers for me is Facebook Marketplace. And we talked a lot about social media, but I was looking for a dresser. And while I'm looking for a dresser, and maybe it's just me, maybe this has happened to you, I somehow find myself looking at Ford F-150s. And I'm like, I got on here for a dresser. How did I get the trucks? Well, because you, you kind of need a truck to move the dresser. Honda Civics aren't good for moving dressers, right? So, and all of a sudden, you just end up there. Anybody relate to me? All right, no, all right. You can leave me on an island. That's fine. So, so for me, that's one of the places I've just had to learn to avoid because it causes me to want things that I don't necessarily need that just fills my life. The other one is I can't drive down Route 11 and look right because I see the truck that I've been eyeing for like three years. So I just go the highway and then I get to ignore it, all right? I've learned, I've learned my limits, and, and that is one of them. Here, here's the other thing that wanting less will afford you in your life, and it's this. Wanting less leads to less debt. Wanting less leads to less debt. We are a culture, we are a generation that is so impatient to get the things we think we deserve that we put it on a card that we financially will never be able to pay off. At least not, and also sustain the lifestyle we're currently living. As a, as a culture in America, here's some stats for us on debt. The average household debt is $158,000. That's not including your mortgage. 77% of American households have debt. $15,000 is in credit card debts and $31,000 in car loans. That's the average American home. Okay? Now, what is that? It's not that stuff is too expensive. It's that we want things that aren't in our price range. So we go to get things thinking that new car or that new purchase or that new whatever is finally going to deliver to us happiness, which is fair. You wouldn't buy it if it wasn't going to make you happy. It's okay. Just acknowledge the fact that that's why you went there. But you know as well as I do, when Capital One sends you that love letter and tells you how much you owe... Your heart is not jumping for joy. Oh, yay, highest bill ever, right? No, it, it, it promised you happiness, but instead it delivered you stress and a weight and a burden, perhaps even anxiety. See, because the average median income in America is only 53000 So you're talking about 46000 in consumer debt, not including your house, not including mortgage. 46000 in consumer debt, 53000 in general in, in average income. You have $7,000 left over at the end of the year. How do we get a year behind as a culture? Starbucks probably gets the other six and a half. How do we get there? Well, because we wanted something we couldn't afford. We, we looked for happiness in places it was never going to be there for. So how, how do you get out of this? How do you move on? Well, he tells us what not to do in the next verse, verse five. It says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. One of the temptations in a talk like this is, fine, well, I just won't care about stuff. I won't work hard. If I don't have a lot of money, whatever. No, that's not what he's saying. Because the next verse, he says, the fool is lazy. 
The fool stops working. The fool sits on their hands. The fool doesn't put in good effort, right? There's nothing worse than being broke and coveting simultaneously. And he says, don't, don't do that. That's not the solution is to give up. The secret is actually in verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He said somewhere between this extreme of wanting so much stuff to finally make you happy and this extreme of laziness that just gives up, which are both sins, in the middle is this place of peace. And he said it's when there's one handful of tranquility. Well, how do you get one handful? By letting go of all the things in the other hand. By releasing some things that probably don't fit within your life, fit within your budget, fit within uh, the realm of what you're actually chasing in your life. And he says, when you found this, you'll be really, really content. I watched this in my boys. I have a 21-month-old and an 8-month-old. And uh, Jocko's the oldest and Callum's the youngest. And I'll watch them play with their blocks and their toys. And, and every now and then they'll play well, but they're boys and you know, that's what you get out of boys. Every now and then, uh, Jocko just decides that he doesn't want his brother to have a single toy or any joy at all. And so he runs over and he starts scooping up all the, the toys. And his nickname's Bubba because he can't say Callum or brother, so it's Bubba. He'll say, no Bubba, no Bubba. And he'll just have like arms full of toys running around the house. But, you know, those little arms can't hold a lot of things. So every time he tries to pick up a new toy, he drops an old one to pick up another one. And then he eventually gets so frustrated because he can't keep Bubba from playing with the toys that he just stands there yelling, no, Bubba, no, Bubba, no. And I'm just like, are you happy, kid? And I look at him just so convicted in my own heart because there is a micro picture of the comparison that leads us to lose our peace because we want more. And here's the deal, as much as you collect and as much as you have, somebody always has more. And if the more you have is what's driving your happiness and your contentment is, is derived out of being better than others, you'll just be in the cycle. You know who's really happy in that scenario? Bubba. <laughs> Chewing on cars. <laughs> Buddy that drives. Uh-huh, right? Just super, super content. And I watch them and I go, how do I be more like him? Well, I have to, to change what my heart loves. I have to change what brings me happiness. I have to change what I think must be true of my life in order to be content. Jump over with me to the next chapter, chapter 5. Here's what he says. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves Legos can never fit enough in their arms. Jocko is witness to that. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. In a talk like this, it's easy to look at those who you think have and think, oh, this sermon is for them. But I'm a have-not, so this sermon isn't for me. But notice what he says. He doesn't say whoever is rich never has enough. He says whoever has a love of money never has enough. This isn't an income problem because he doesn't say whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their enormous income because you can be broke and not be satisfied with your income. The problem isn't a money problem. It's not even a dollar amount problem. It's not an abundance problem. It's a heart position problem. It says, I'm trying to get something, whether it be satisfaction, whether it be status, whether it be value, out of these things in this stuff to make me feel something. And he says, it will never satisfy. 
it will always leave you empty. The key is here, what is your heart really loving? What is its utmost affection? And he says, if it's stuff and things, you'll be in a rat race for a long time. Listen to what he says next in verse 11. As goods increase, so do the ones who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Let me unpack that verse for you real quick. He says, basically, the more I got, the more I realized there was a responsibility and a weight that came with those things. As his stuff and influence grew, he found himself really just managing the things rather than enjoying the things. And and what was meant to bring him happiness really ultimately became a burden of responsibility. And he says, they just became things that everybody wanted to use and everybody needed. And it just didn't even mean anything other than I have to manage this stuff. Next verse, verse 12, he says something really interesting. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. He says there's this beautiful respite when you work hard, you're proud of what you do, and then you're content with what you have. That you're not consumed by all the extra, which I think is where our second place that you might find happiness this morning. And happiness comes from keeping less. Happiness comes from keeping less. Not having all the things. Letting some of it go. Here's some stats for you that I think are pretty staggering. Today in America, compared to 70 years ago, we consume twice as many material goods as we did before. The house size has doubled while the number living in these homes have been cut in half. So 70 years ago, the average home was only 1,000 square feet. Uh, Now the average home is almost 2,400 square feet, and the amount of people living in them are half the amount that were in there before. There's over 300,000 items in the average home. If you have small children, just assume that's close to a quarter million, three quarters of a million, right? Like every Lego counts. And there's more TV screens than people in most homes. I only, I only am free of one of those, and it's TV screens, all right? And I was actually looking at a new TV the other day. So there you go. Have at it. What happened? Why do I bring this up? We have more than we have ever had. Our homes are massive compared to the world around us. Massive. Two to three times size, much, two to three times larger than anywhere else in the world. Here's my question. Are we happier? <laughs> Not even a little bit. Not even close. I was actually talking to a gentleman this morning in customer service, and he said the amount of times I've gotten yelled at and screamed at in the last two years is just astronomical compared to any time before. So here's what I mean. The more has not fixed the problem. The bigger has not fixed the problem. The next thing has not fixed the problem. There's something else we're missing inside of our hearts. I spent five years overseas traveling, doing missions work, and One of the most profound things to me was as I would travel to a village, and sometimes you'd take this rickety Jeep to this end of this road, and then they'd say, we can't go any farther. The rest is up to you, and we'd get our backpacks, and we'd hike for two hours to these villages. And you get up in these villages, and there's just literally huts. Huts. Some of them had floors. Some of them didn't. And you you walk into these rooms, and, and you'd expect to see sullenness and sadness, but what you find is the biggest smiles you've ever seen. It should be on a dentist commercial. Just ear to ear grin, so excited that friends came over, so excited that we brought a little bit of food with us, so excited to give us their last bit of tea around their campfire, just pure joy. And after doing this for five years, one of the observations I made as I came back was this. 
They had almost nothing we would consider valuable, but they had everything we want. Which goes back to the constantly chasing and always resisting. Could it be that they actually have a secret in having less, perhaps even in wanting less, that their life is free from some of the burdens that we unnecessarily heap upon ourselves to keep up with our neighbors? There's a book, The More of Less, and there's a couple observations he makes in there about what a life free of some stuff looks like. Having less means less stress. You ever get stressed out by your stuff? Right? Like I was, I was stressed out the other week, and yes, pastors get stressed, okay? I was stressed out the other week, and I thought, I'm going to go to my happy place. It's a place of peace and tranquility, and it's really quiet, and it's just... <sighs> so I actually brought a picture to show you what it looks like here this morning. So, uh, <laughs> right? This is my garage, and before you judge me, we had to remodel my basement, so half of my basement, or actually all of my basement is in the garage right now, and... You know, you don't go in your garage or your messiest room when you need a place to relax. Well, it is evident in itself that the more stuff out of order, the mess and the excess creates stress in our life. And I'm going to be honest with you. The moment I took this picture, I was so stressed out about it. I like stress cleaned the entire garage and it doesn't look like this now, but you got the before picture. Where are my stress cleaners at? All right. There's a few of you. Why? Because the more hasn't made us more relaxed. It's gotten in the way. Here's, here's the next thing. Having less means better sleep. I don't know anybody in this room who would say, no, I'd like to sleep worse in my life, okay? We, we all want better sleep. And Ecclesiastes 5 told us, we read it. I want to read it to you again. The sleep of a laborer is sweet. The sleep of somebody who has worked hard, been diligent, and then sat in contentment is sweet. How much sleep have you lost over a broken car or something you got to fix or something you got to work on? A lot more than I'd care to admit. Here's the next one. Having less means less comparison. When you choose, and this has to be a conscious decision probably more than once, to get out of the rat race of comparison. It's an unwinnable game. When you choose to get out of that and say, no, I'm not pursuing that. I'm pursuing happiness and peace. I'm going to begin to offload some things. Uh, You find yourself not looking around. You find yourself not interested in what others have because you see the stress that comes with it. Every now and then I think about something I could afford if I really stretched my budget and I go, yeah, but what am I going to lose to get that? That's not my lot. That's not what God has given me. That's not for me. And that's what he said in Ecclesiastes 4.6. Better one handful, contentment and peace than trying to keep up with somebody else. Having less means, this is a practical one, less work for someone else. You ever cleaned out somebody's home who was unwilling to get rid of their stuff? Well, it's important, and it might be valuable later. No, it won't. It will cost us $900 a dumpster. Get rid of it now on your own dime. I just watched my neighbors spend four-plus months emptying out their parents' house. There's a lot of stuff in there going to the dump. Why? Because we're unwilling to let go of things because we think happiness is in those things, and it's just not. Here's the next thing it means. Happiness, having less means more contentment. Now, as you read this list, I think you all want less stress. You all want better sleep. (laughs) You'd like less comparison. You don't want to be a burden to anybody else. And you'd like some contentment in your life. Well, contentment doesn't arrive with the next purchase, which is what the whole marketing scheme is, right? If you just had this car, then you'd 
you'd be happy and you'd arrive. It's not true. I, I heard this quote, and I don't actually know who said it, but I think it's hilarious. We think we can fix discontentment by getting just one more thing, but that's like trying to lose weight by eating just one more pan of brownies. As a nutrition coach, I thoroughly enjoyed that, but it's so true. Just that next thing. No, 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 it won't. And here's probably the most important for us, most important one for us this morning. Having less means more in time for what's important. When I was single, I lived in a 600-square-foot apartment with one bedroom, one bath, and one frying pan. My wife and I got married. There was two frying pans because the one I had was insufficient. Do you know how often we thought about our house, our home, or our walls? Never. Never once crossed our mind. I didn't have to shovel. I didn't have to plow. Didn't think about it. God has blessed us with a beautiful home, and we're happy to live in it. Do you know how often I think about my lawn? Far more than I should, because I haven't mowed it in three weeks, and it really bothers me every time I look at it. I don't have time for it. I'm busy. You know what I lost sleep over last night? My baseboards. There it is. I'm going to out myself, all right? What I want in my life is time for my kids, Time for my wife. I'm watching my little kids grow up so fast in front of me. And every time I think I should spend some time with them, there's just these things and these responsibilities and the stuff that hits me. I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this. Well, I wouldn't have to deal with it if I would get rid of it. I wouldn't have to think about it if it wasn't in there. And I'd be free to spend time on what I actually want to be spending my time on. And I would bet you're right there with me. That we'd be freed up to spend our time on what is most important to us. So here's my challenge for all of us this morning. Would you begin to declutter your life? I mean, one of two things by this. Would you begin to declutter your life from the wanting that God has not given to you? And then would you actually literally declutter your life? Get rid of 100 things this week. That's my challenge to you. If you're an average home, you have 300,000 in there. You won't even notice 100 is gone. And if you think 100, yes, you should probably give 1,000, okay? Find a way to be generous, to give, to pass on. Get rid of 100 things. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to find this heart space just freed up. Every time I get rid of stuff, I go, (sighs) now there's more to get rid of, right? But I find myself content with space for my heart to be with the people I care about most. When my wife and I got married, we made a commitment to each other early on, and these weren't the exact words we used, but it was something like this, and it was this. We want to, as a couple, work hard to be generous, not to build clutter. My wife and I are, are, are hard workers. We, we love working hard. And when we got married, there were six jobs between the two of us. We loved it, but we said we're not doing this so that we can get all the stuff that somebody our, somebody our kids are going to have to throw away. We want to do this so we can be generous to our neighbors. We want to do this so we can be generous to our friends. We want to do this so we can be generous to the church. We want to do this so we can be generous to missionaries. That was our commitment early on. And can I tell you um, that the longer I've been in the States, the harder this is for me? I made this commitment right after coming home from overseas, and it was easy. It was, I had good perspective, and the longer I've been here, the harder it is to maintain this. Why? Because our life is based on comparison to those around us. Could we then compare ourselves to the way of Jesus, who didn't even have a pillow for his head to lay on? I'm not saying go be homeless. I'm saying let's have our hearts be oriented to where happiness is really found and it's a life-giving relationship with Jesus and living and walking free of the entanglements of this world, looking forward to the one to come. Let's go get rid of some stuff, bless some people. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its brutal honesty. We thank you for the exposing that it does in our hearts. And God, it's so subtle. It's so easy to be caught in this. And I pray that you just give us eyes. You'd give us perspective to see what really matters in life. That our hearts would be free from envy, free from coveting. God, my heart would be free from envy and free from coveting. That you'd, you'd build contentment in us. Lord, we love you. Help us to be a generous people. I pray that what would be true of Bridgewater Hall said and the people who attend is that they are uh, known in their community for contentment. They're known in their community for being satisfied with the good things you have given them and ultimately full of joy and happiness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.